I was thinking about the story of John chapter 4 where um, Jesus comes across a woman at the well and uh, she's talking to him about the idea of worship and she says something that's very interesting. She says, we worship over there on the mount. Now the Samaritans had a, a very special temple where they worship God. And then she says, but you Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, he said, look, salvation is of the Jews. The Jews have it right. But then he says this. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you will neither worship me on the mountain or here in Jerusalem. But then he says, I look for a people who will worship me in spirit and truth. I don't know if you saw the transition. Jesus was saying that worship was not to be a complete confined to a place, but that worship would be where his people are. Amen? What does the Bible say? When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst you. So Lord, the Lord Jesus is here. So right now we want to start off with a word of prayer and welcome him um, as, as we open up the word of God. So let's bow our heads right now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again. Lord, we want to open our hearts to your spirit. God, we know that this morning's message is a holy message because your word is being spoken. Yet this, this very thing, this issue, this controversy that we're going to talk about, we just want to pray and ask that you would bless us with clarity, with insight. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much because you are a God who is far better than what we can imagine. And Lord, as we jump into this morning's message, we pray that you would help us to be attentive, focused, and that your angels will draw near. We know that Satan will try to stop this message from being preached, but we pray and ask that you'd rebuke him away from this place, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's message is entitled, Myths and Legends. Myths and Legends. You know, it's very interesting. When I was younger, um, that wasn't too long ago, and so... When I was younger, I used to be very interested in the supernatural. I was very much interested in, you know, uh, Bigfoot and UFOs and aliens and all sorts of things. And uh, this is when I got out of high school. And I had a lot of questions about these things. And my heart was searching for more than just the reality that I saw. I was looking for the supernatural. I never forgot that, uh, you know, one day I attempted to perform a seance after reading a, butch, uh, a book about witchcraft. And so I thought, wow, this is very interesting. It wasn't too long ago, actually, that I was driving with one of my friends, and uh, we were in the Santa Cruz Mountains, okay? And he says something to me out of the blue. He says, there is a Bigfoot museum in these mountains. And I said, a Bigfoot museum in these mountains? He said, yeah. I said, we need to check this out. And so we took a U-turn, and about 40 minutes later, we found this little museum, and it said the Bigfoot Museum. And so we got out of there, and there was this little old man. He had a long beard, and he was behind this, uh, this desk. And we went around, and this, it looked like this little room. And we went around in there, and there was these casts of Bigfoot prints. There was pictures of Bigfoot. There was the, the Patterson Gremlin film. You know, the Bigfoot's walking like this. It's that picture. It's that video. I mean, he had all sorts of things in there. And we began to talk to this guy. And let me just tell you something, okay? This guy was so convicted, or I shouldn't say convicted, convinced about 
uh, the existence of Bigfoot. He spent an hour trying to justify his belief in Bigfoot. I never forgot it. He was bringing out evidence. He started bringing out this audio he believed was of Bigfoot language. And let me tell you something. That's where I just completely lost it right there. I mean, it, it was unusual. I mean, and this is what it sounded like. Are you running? You want to hear what it sounded like? I can still imitate the sound. He said, we've actually, this is what he told me. He said, we've actually been able to, to, to de decipher some of this language that these Bigfoot uh, were speaking to each other on this recording. And I was looking at him, and I was trying not to smile, okay? And he said that it's actually a mixture of Tagalog and Spanish. That's what he told me. And so I'm there, and I'm like, try not to smile. No, no, no. Wait till you hear what it sounded like, okay? And uh, he's like, I was like, well, let's hear it. He put it on. No joke. It sounded exactly like this. Okay, now, this is just, I'm just doing this just for the sake of illustration. This is what it sounded like, though. Like that. Just like that. And I looked at him, and I said, that's Bigfoot language? He said, yeah, we believe it's Bigfoot language. And there was no smile on his face. He was dead serious, looking me straight in the eye. And I thought to myself, wow, this guy believes in something that he hasn't seen too much proof of. I asked him, I was like, have you actually seen Bigfoot? These type of questions. Yet he has spent his entire life trying to, to sort of... Uh, uh, defend this idea, this existence of this creature that many people haven't seen before. There's these sort of uh, foggy pictures and videos, and he really believes that this creature exists. He believes it exists, to the point where he gave up degrees. He, was, he spent his lifetime, uh, you know, jumping in and out of school, trying to study uh, paleontology, trying to study the anatomy of these creatures. Never saw one before. And I thought to myself, wow, if Christians were only as much convicted about their God as this guy is about Bigfoot, this world would be a lot more different. I walked away, no joke, convicted. Not convicted about Bigfoot's existence. I walked away convicted that I should be doing more for the cause. And if this man was willing to do all this, even set up a little shop to prove this hairy creature its possible existence, how much more am I doing to, to prove to this world the existence of a holy and righteous and just God? Amen? The name of this message is called Myths and Legends. Myths and Legends. And uh, has anybody um, remember the, uh, the, some of the news reports from 9-11 that very morning that it took place? Do you guys remember that? It was very interesting. I still, I still have it fresh in my mind. I got up one morning, walked out, and they turned the TV on, and instantly I saw these, the, the, the newscasts. There was confusion everywhere, and there was these videos, and it was just a, a very interesting time. I woke up my mom. She came out there, and we sat on the couch, and we watched this for a couple hours straight. Videos replaying, and just the, the possible uh, uh, the suggestions about where this is coming from, what's happening, the theories behind this. And I thought, wow, this is, this is crazy that this is happening to our world. One of my relatives, actually, I, I talked to him, and he said this. He said this. He said, America has been brought to its knees. America has been brought to its knees. This very event struck at the very heart 
of the American society. Since that time, since 9-11, our world has changed drastically. Not just talking about how we view the Muslim world, but how we view our own government. There's a lot of questions regarding 9-11. Was it an inside job? Was it something that the government was behind, this shadow government that exists within our own government? I've had people try to convince me of this. All these documentaries that started flooding you know, the video stores about, about uh, 9-11, that it is a government cover-up, that this was something that was caused by the government. And it's very interesting. I heard all these conflicting reports about 9-11. Who caused 9-11? One of the magazines that I read that really kind of helped me settle is sort of the, uh, the direction of what I believed about 9-11 was this. You ever heard of this magazine? It's called Popular Mechanics. It costs a dollar. If you order it online, you can order it after Sabbath. And so uh, this magazine, what it did, it went through. It began to debunk all the conspiracy theories regarding 9-11. And they went through it very methodically, and they stated... Several facts, they got eyewitness reports, they got, uh, the, they got the scientists in, and they presented a whole bunch of evidence that supported uh, what took place, what they believed took place. And then still, there were still all these myths that existed around 9-11. People were saying that it was a government job, it was something that was uh, done by our president, things like that. And I thought to myself, wow, here you have some people who are debunking these myths, and then you have people who are trying to debunk the debunkers. And it just went on and on and on and on and on. I thought to myself, wow, who's going to know the truth about this? Not until the kingdom comes, amen? But here's the thing. There are a lot of myths concerning God. A lot of myths that exist in this world concerning God. You're going to see the direction we're going to go with this message, but hang on. There are a lot of myths and legends concerning God. I spent an hour talking with my philosophy teacher, actually, on Thursday. And let me tell you something. He believed a lot of myths concerning uh, the nature of God. Brought up the, the gospel of Judas, brought up the idea that, you know, Judas was in it with Jesus. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting. He brought these things up. He began to talk about the idea how, you know, he, uh, he was taught in Sunday school, that God destroys people for all of eternity. And I'll tell you something. There's one teaching that gets to me more than any other teaching. And it's this teaching regarding hell. There are a lot of myths concerning hell. And what we want to do today, we want to take a deeper look into the doctrine of hellfire. Now you may say to yourself, Anel, I've been to an evangelistic series. I know what the teaching is. No, no, no. I promise you by the very end of this uh, message that you're going to have a deeper and greater understanding of the biblical view of hell. Can you say amen to that? God's word is powerful and he has some things in there for us. Now I love what this quote said. It's by an unknown author, but this is what it says. From the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, from laziness that is content with half-truths, and from arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, O God of truth, deliver us. Can you say amen to that? This is the calling card of Seventh-day Adventism. We are not afraid of questioning the things that we have so that we may better understand it. We're not afraid of questions. At the same time, we're not afraid of new truth that may be revealed to us. I really believe one of the great things that drew me to Seventh-day Adventism 
was the very fact that we could look at these truths and we could scrutinize them to see if they are biblical. Folks, when it comes to this teaching of hell, I love what Ellen White says, because she puts, her, puts the nail right on the head. She says, this teaching of hell has led more people away from God than any other teaching. Than any other teaching. Because this supposed doctrine of hell paints a picture of God where he appears worse than Satan himself. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be taking a, a biblical look at the doctrine of hell. Uh, I want you to also notice that there are a, a whole lot of scholars now that are questioning this teaching of an eternal burning hell. Now this is the supposed view, and I'm just going to share it with you really quickly so you understand. The supposed view of hell is this, that immediately after death, based upon that individual's choices, God either sends them to hell where they are burned and tortured for all of eternity, or God sends them to heaven where they can live blissfully with him for all of eternity. That is, a, the, that is the majority view when it comes to hell. But I believe you're going to see something very interesting. There are a lot of scholars right now who are now rejecting this teaching, and they are saying it is not a biblical teaching. One of them was F.F. Bruce. He's actually one of the top New Testament scholars, died not too long ago, but this is what he said. Annihilation is certainly an acceptable interpretation of the relevant New Testament passage. Eternal conscious torment is incompatible with the revealed character of God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying eternal conscious torment is incompatible with the revealed character of God. This guy is not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he realizes this supposed doctrine is completely incompatible with this idea of a God of love. Watch what another scholar said. This is John Stott. He died not too long ago, too. I do not dogmatize about the position which I have come. I hold it tentatively. I believe that ultimate annihilation, let me just explain what annihilation is. Annihilation is that hellfire does exist, but it is a limited process where God ultimately will destroy sin and sinners forever, where there will not be an eternal conscious torment, but a finality of sin. And look what he says. I believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. How about this one? John Wenham, he actually wrote the book called New Testament Greek Essentials. Well-known Greek, I actually used this Greek book when I was in, in, at college. It's used all over colleges. They use it at PUC. But this guy wasn't an Adventist. Look what he said. I feel the time has come, and I love this quote, when I must declare my mind honestly. I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should indeed be happy if before I die I could help in sweeping it away. Can you say amen to that? Most of all, I should rejoice to see a number of theologians joining in researching this great topic. I want you to understand something that's happening all over the world right now. There are a lot of scholars who are seeing now that this teaching that is well known and well believed in the Protestant world is not a biblical teaching. It's not just Seventh-day Adventists that have a hold on the truth. Can you say amen to that? There are a lot of people who are studying their Bibles and say, wait a second, this is not compatible with the God of love. This is not a scriptural teaching. And folks, if we need to understand this. If we're not giving the truth out, God will find somebody else who will. Amen? God will find somebody else who will. 
I want you to tell me who this person is right here. He actually questioned the eternal burning torment doctrine. This is what he said. But I noticed that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying of fire is usually treated at the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. That the lost soul is eternally fixed in its diabolical attitude, we cannot doubt. But whether this eternal fixity implies endless duration or duration at all, we cannot say. You want to know who this was? C.S. Lewis. Even C.S. Lewis could see that this doctrine was not compatible with the God of love. Do you know what Ellen White says? She says this, that this teaching will go against the innate justice of men. And they will, A, either have to reject the teaching or, B, reject God. I want you to see this, that even this man, C.S. Lewis, well-known Christian philosopher, even he questioned the idea of this uh, infinite uh, lifespan where sinners are burning for all of eternity when it comes to the punishment of God. Folks, we need to understand that the Bible has all the answers. Can you say amen to that? Do you know who this man is? His name is Rob Bell. He's done all these videos for youth ministry. He's been around for the last several years. Very popular until recently. He's now being accused of being called a, a heretic. And this is his view. He believes, after looking at this doctrine that's, that's out in the world, that God tortures people for all of eternity, he believes that this is not a biblical teaching. He in, fact he, in fact, believes that God will ultimately save everybody. So instead of accepting this extreme, he swings all the way, and he goes to this extreme. And by the way, did you know Ellen White prophesied of him? Good. I was waiting for someone to say something. <laughs> I can prove it. Do you want to see the quote? Ellen White actually prophesied about this guy. She actually said, Rob Bell is going to come upon the earth and do this? Watch this. A large class to whom the doctrine of eternal torment is revolting are driven to the opposite what? Error. They see that the scriptures represent God as a being of love and compassion, and they cannot believe that he will consign these creatures to the fires of an eternal burning hell. But holding that the soul is naturally immortal, they see no other alternative but to conclude that all mankind will be finally saved. Many regard the threatenings of the Bible as designed merely to frighten men into obedience and not to be literally fulfilled. Folks, the things that she talk, talked about have come to pass. She said there will be a large class of people that will reject this eternal burning torment. They see it's incompatible with the, the God of the love described in the scriptures. And they'll go the other way and they'll say, wait a second, he's going to save everybody. There's no way he could do that. But folks, when you study the biblical model, which is found in Seventh-day Adventism, you see that this is the most just, the most truest, and the most balanced view. Can you say amen to that? And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a biblical look at this, but I have some questions I want to ask you, and I want everybody to answer if you can. I want you to tell me if this is an appropriate biblical church sign. Yes or no? Is this a biblical church sign? Yes. How many people say yes, raise your hand? How many people say no? Okay, everyone needs to raise their hand. 
Otherwise, we're going to be here till the end of potluck. And I know some people don't want to be here till then. Is this a biblically appropriate church sign? Raise your hand if you believe yes, it is. How many people believe it's not? Okay. How about this one? Is this a biblically appropriate sign? Raise your hand if you believe it is. How many people believe it is not? Okay, very good. How about this one? <laughs> now, you guys are laughing, but I want to tell you the majority of Christians believe that God will eternally torment people. What if I was to tell you there are Seventh-day Adventists, the majority of Seventh-day Adventists that have unbiblical views about hell? What if I was to challenge you on that? I'm going to challenge you today that I believe there are presuppositions that exist within Seventh-day Adventists that are not biblical. Now you may think, Anel, Anel, Anel. Before we get there, we're going to show you, show you some more things. Is this a biblical one? Is this a biblical appro appropriate church sign? Do you believe that there is a balanced view being presented here, yes or no? How many people, raise your hand, believe that this is a balanced view? Raise your hand. How many people do not believe that this is a balanced view? Raise your hand. The homes aren't, <laughs> you guys aren't your own on this one. Okay. How about this one? Is this a biblically balanced view? I want you to pay attention to, to, pay attention to what I'm asking you guys. Is this a balanced view of scripture regarding hell? and the appeal of scripture. I want you to raise your hand if you believe this. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. How many people believe it is not? Raise your hand. I think you guys are starting to pick up on something. What we're gonna be talking about today in the time that remains is this. There are myths that are held regarding the teaching of hellfire, and there are myths that are held by Seventh-day Adventists regarding hellfire. And I believe that I'm going to show you some of these myths right now. Here they are. Myth number one, hell is about what you get. Hell is about what you get. Myth number two, that God inflicts the pain. He intentionally inflicts the pain. Myth number three, God alone will make the judgment. Myth number four, who will actually burn? Myth number five, hell is the opposite of heaven. Myth number six, the desires of God regarding the destruction of the wicked. I'm going to challenge you that some of these views that are held not just by mainstream Christians, but Seventh-day Adventists as well. And I believe as we jump into the scriptures right now, you're going to see a little bit more regarding the truth about these myths. And by the way, I love what Winston Churchill says. He says, the truth is the most important thing. It is the most valuable thing on this planet. It's so important that it's often 
protected by a bodyguard of lies. Let's find out what the truths are. Everyone, take your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 49 through 50. Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 through 50, and let's go there rapidly. Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 49. Are we all there? Say amen. Here we go. Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 49. Are we all there? Watch what the Bible says right here. And so it will be at the end of the what? So this is talking about the very end. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of what? Fire. Notice that them being cast into the furnace of fire does not take place immediately after death, but it takes place at the end of the what? At the end of the age, right? Or at the end of time, right? So hellfire obviously is not a place that is in existence right now. The destruction of sin takes place at the very end of time. I want you to pay attention to a certain detail that's mentioned in there. Verse 50. In the furnace of fire, there will be weeping and what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does anybody know what that phrase means? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus says it three times in the Gospel of Matthew. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anytime he's describing the destruction of the wicked, he is referring to this phrase, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, normally we think to ourselves, well, that's the wicked being burned, and that's why they're just grinding their teeth. They're just grinding their teeth, and they can't stand this pain, and this is why they're just, they're just suffering. Does anybody know why they are weeping and gnashing? Take your Bible and go to the Gospel of Luke. After I began to read this over and over again, I thought to myself, wait a second, this sounds like Jesus is trying to, call us to, he's trying to help us understand something about the destruction of wicked during hell. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, what's causing the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Is it God burning them? Take a good look at Luke chapter 13, verse 28. Are we all there? Look what it says. There will be weeping and what of teeth? Gnashing of teeth. Now notice Jesus continues. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out... Do you know what is causing the weeping and gnashing of teeth? The weeping and gnashing of teeth comes when they realize what they have lost. In other words, hell isn't about this torture that they're receiving. Hell is about not getting what they could have. I want you to understand why that is super important to understand. Hell is not this idea, well, you choose something, you get something over here, and for heaven, you get something over here. Hell is about what you're not going to get. Being lost is about what you are not going to get. And what is it that you're not going to get? You're not going to get eternal life, but eternal life with who? With Jesus. In other words, what causes the weeping and gnashing of teeth is when they see what they could have received. And this is leading to their torment. 
Did you know this idea, this, this phrase, weeping and gnashing teeth, is not a New Testament term? It does not originate in the New Testament. It actually originates in the Old Testament. Take your Bible, go to Psalms 112. That's where it appears. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his what? Now take a good look at verse 9. Let's go with verse 8, actually. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. Now take a good look at verse 10. The wicked will see it and be grieved, and he will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. So why are they weeping and gnashing? What are they saying about the righteous? They're seeing the honor they receive. Now, this is very important to understand, this dichotomy. Hell is about what you do not get. It is not about what you receive. It is about what you do not get. In fact, this is how Jesus described the destruction of the wicked. He says, look, you want to know the worst thing about being destroyed at the end of time? It's when they realize what they could have had. That's what's causing the torment. When they realize they could have had this. Let's continue a little bit more. The Bible says, I have not seen nor ears heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. There's going to be so much in heaven for us. We're going to be so blown away by this. And folks, when we are surrounded by the very presence of Jesus, when we're there, we're going to be so enthralled with this, we're going to say, heaven is cheap enough. God, I would give everything up to stay with you. We're not going to want to leave him whose name is love. All right, let's continue. How about judgment? Oh, God's going to judge the wicked. Oh, he's going to judge the wicked. How do people believe that? You don't believe God is going to judge the wicked. Most of you guys do not believe God is going to judge the wicked. Raise your hand. How many people believe God is going to judge the wicked? Now, let me clarify the question. How many people believe that God alone will judge the wicked. Who else is involved in the judgment of the wicked? Who else? All the righteous are involved in the judgment of the wicked. Look what the Bible says. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do, we not, do you not know that we shall judge angels? So who else is involved in the judgment of the wicked? Now here's a good question I want to ask you guys, and I want you to raise your hand if you think you know the answer. Why does God include the righteous in judgment? Steve? Okay, they're going to have questions. Okay, very good. But why else? By the way, you know what Ellen White says in Great Controversy? She says that the righteous will even met out the punishment. You hear what I just said? That the righteous will be involved in meting out the punishment. Great controversy. You can read it for yourself. Why does God want to involve the righteous in judgment of the wicked? Why doesn't he just throw them in hell right now and get them done with? He doesn't want them to ever be a question. Is there any other reason? They can see he is fair, yeah? He's on, they're exonerating, exonerating God. You know what's very beautiful about this? All of you guys are right about this. Is that even before... God destroys the wicked. He wants to make sure 
that the righteous are on board with this. In other words, it's so important to God that humanity be involved in the judgment of humanity. Did you know there's another group that's going to be judging the wicked? Okay, you have, the, you have God, you have the righteous. Is there another group that's going to judge the wicked? The wicked themselves. Did you know God will have the wicked judge themselves? Right before they're destroyed, they will, they will completely say, they will say, God, we accept your decision. We believe that what you're going to do is just. Just and true are your ways. Now, this is something very interesting. Here's the question I want to ask you. Why is it important that the wicked acknowledge the justice of God? Who wants to take a shot at that? Why is it important that they acknowledge the justice of God? Raise your hand high. No one can yell foul? Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. Yes? Fair to who? But fair to who? He's being fair to the wicked. Do you believe God is fair to the wicked? Do you believe that God, in before destroys, in destroying the wicked, wants them to acknowledge the fairness of God? Why? Why is it important that they know he was just? I'm not talking about the righteous, though, or the other unfallen angels. I'm asking, why is it important for the wicked themselves to understand justice? Yes, Don. Okay, you're explaining exactly what I just said in the question. I'm asking the question, why is it important that the wicked themselves acknowledge the justice of God? Why is it important for God to, the wicked to be understanding this themselves? Yes, Steve. Okay. So this is very important. I want to tap on this. It's important to God that even the wicked are satisfied with the claim of justice. It's very important for me to use the word satisfied. Because in the in human heart, the highest attributes that we have is we want a sense of justice. We want to know that what was happening to me is right. It's more than just saying, well, we're gonna, we just want to know God is fair. No, God wants to make sure that the wicked are satisfied in the judgment. That's why he reveals what he does to them. It's not just for the righteous to see or the unfallen worlds to see what God was doing. God has even a heart still for the wicked. And he wants to make sure that when they are being destroyed, that there is satisfaction about the judgment of God. God even cares for those who are going to be destroyed. But there will be one being who will not be satisfied. Who is that? Because at the end, he turns again. You can read Great Controversy. I want to challenge you. That's your homework, by the way. Read the last few chapters of Great Controversy. You know what Ellen White says? Nothing more could be revealed to Satan. There's nothing more that God could give to him. There's nothing more. In his capacity to love God, he was a greater capacity than any other creature. He was able to love God on a height and depth 
that no other creature will ever know, but at the same time was his capacity to love God, was his capacity to hate God. I want you to understand this. There's great controversy regarding this teaching, that this teaching about the justice of God has been so, uh, so uh, presented in the wicked, the most wicked thing, in the most wicked way. So when the world looks at God, they see this attribute that no one really wants to look at, but this is the most fair, and you will see the love of God in this. When we're moving away these layers of de deception, we begin to see the love of God clearly manifested in his justice. Now, this is very important. Revelation 20, verse 6. Take your Bible, let's go there. This is talking about the thousand years. Look what the Bible says right here. Blessed and holy is he who had part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be what of God? priest of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand what? For a thousand years, what will we be on, in the new heavens, in, the, in heaven? What will we be? What does the Bible say about our role during the thousand years? The Bible says we will be priests. Does anybody know what a priest is? Who knows what a priest is? What's a priest? Where's your biblical proof for that, young man? I need biblical proof. What's a priest? The Bible says we'll be a priest with him, priest with him for a thousand years in the judgment of the wicked. My question is, what is a priest? How is he different from any other position in the kingdom? Represents God's character? Well, the Bible tells us actually what a priest will do. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 6 and 7. Whoever is deserving of what? Death shall be what? Put to death on the testimony, or excuse me, shall be put to death on the testimony of how many witnesses? Two or three. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of how many witnesses? One. God wants to make sure all humanity is in on this. Watch what he says next. The hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him on death, but afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. God says when it came to Israelite judgment, there had to be more than one witness. Someone may make the accusation, but others would have to come in on it and agree. Now watch what it says all the way in verse 9. And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of what? The priests were individuals who resided over spiritual matters. They made judgment calls. I want you to understand this. This is very important to understand. A lot of times there's this view about hellfire that God's just going to judge the wicked and no one else will be involved in it. But God is saying right here, look, when you are priest, you will be involved in the judgment. You will be involved in the judgment. And by the way, the Bible says in Psalms 149, I want you to write this down. It says that we will take joy in being part of the judgment. Psalm 149, write it down. This will be an honor that God's people will have when we write out the judgment. Psalm 149. Take your Bible. Yes, we're going to Luke chapter 12, verse 46. The judgment of the wicked, when we write out the judgment, 
will say, okay, God, based upon their life, it seems as if on the amount of sins that they have, they're going to feel the torment based upon this. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with what? Many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with what? To everyone to whom much is given from him will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more. Let me ask you a question. What is the destruction or the judgment of the wicked based upon? That they knew. So those who will face greater punishment during the destruction will be those who? Those are, who are those people? Those who knew. So let me ask you a question. Who are in a greater, you should say, who should we be more cautious about? Seventh-day Adventist Christians or Buddhists who live in China? Who are going to be more accountable? You know how we know this? Because Jesus said, I will tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. So we can look at the people in San Francisco and we can say, wow, look at, look at those homosexuals. Look at those gays. They're going to burn in hell one day. God says to you, because you know more, you will be held more accountable. You know, I talked to my philosophy teacher. Again, I'm going back to him. And he was very shocked when I told him that God will judge Native Americans before there was a single missionary. God will judge Native Americans based upon whatever light they possessed. Those who had a little bit of light, God will judge them according to just that amount of light. But to those who have more, God will hold us more accountable. And let me ask you a question. Which Christian group will God hold the most accountable throughout all of history? The Seventh-day Adventist Church. The house of God. Folks, I want you to understand something. We, spent, we have spent much of our Christian experience judging the wrongs of other men. But God will hold us more accountable. Who knew better? But we're rejecting what God was showing to us. This is why when people criticize the church, the first thing I think in my mind is, how are they before God? How am I before God? This is the first place I need to look at. You yourself are the first place you need to look at. Amen? There's one more thing. One more thing. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Do you want to know why this teaching is so important? Does anybody, was anybody there at the evangelistic series, this last one we did? Yeah, if you were there, one night I presented the doctrine of hellfire from the Bible. I talked about the state of the dead and hellfire. 
I was deathly sick. Sickness came out of nowhere. And then as soon as I preached, it left. One of the most powerful sermons I've ever preached. I was like, man, praise the Lord. I walked off, and I instantly I got sick again, and I couldn't even walk. Found out that that very same weekend, the pastor of the local mega church had a vision. Some of you may be familiar with this. He had a vision. In his vision, he was taken to hell. He was taken to hell, and there he saw people being tormented and tortured. And he saw people crying out in agony. He came out of that vision, and he told his congregation, I've, the Lord gave me a vision of hell. The very same weekend we were presenting what the Bible teaches about it. Folks, I want you to know something. The devil does not want the world to understand this teaching. Because when they do, they see this beautiful picture of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For there, go ahead and say amen. For the Lord your God is a what? A consuming fire, a jealous what? God is a consuming what? Fire, right? If you look up the word consume, you find it being used in the destruction of the wicked. God will consume the wicked. The wicked are going to be consumed. This land is going to be consumed in its destruction. But I want you to know something. It is saying God is a consuming fire. Did you get it? Tell me if you got that. God is a consuming fire. Notice it does not say God causes a consuming fire. It says God is a what? Consuming fire. God himself, part of who he is, he is surrounded by a consuming fire. It is part of who he is. You're saying, what's your point in now? Why is it that the wicked are destroyed in the presence of God and not the righteous? And I want you to give me a scripture verse. God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Why is it that the, the, the wicked are destroyed in his presence and not the righteous? Scott. Praise the Lord. Say it out loud for me, brother. Say it out loud. The Bible study went really late last night. Okay, what's Lamentations 3, verse 22? Okay, another translation. Lisa, what about it? Can you read the verse? Why is it that the righteous are not consumed? What's upon them? God's mercies. By the way, let me ask you a question. One of my youth brought this out. He said this. The people who were throwing Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace of fire, what happened to them? What happened to the people who were inside the fire that were thrown in? They lived. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it that they lived and the others were destroyed? 
I'm going to say that if Jesus was not in that fiery furnace with those three, they would have perished. In other words, those who have Jesus are covered by his mercy. Can you say amen to that? In fact, when it comes to those who are going to burn, I'm going to show you biblically, it is not the wicked who are going to burn for all of eternity, it is the righteous. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. This is more of a class than it is a sermon, but I think it's very important for us to make sure we understand these things. Isaiah 33. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Okay, read verse 14. Here it is. Ready? The sinners in Zion are what? Sinners. Is that talking about the righteous or the wicked? It's talking about the wicked. They're afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Now watch the question they're asking. Who among us shall dwell with his devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with his everlasting burnings? The wicked are asking the question, they're saying, who's going to be able to live with God in his presence and stand his presence of fire? And the answer is given. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ear from the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. Now watch verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his, what? Beauty. The wicked are asking the question, who's going to burn forever? It's the righteous. The righteous are going to burn forever. Can you say amen to that? We're going to live in the very presence of God. And we're going to see the king in his beauty. Without any covering cherub, without the veil there, we will see the king in his beauty. We will be with God in the fire. Can you say amen to that? Folks, I want you to understand something. The world has a misperception regarding the fire of God. It is the righteous who are going to dwell in that fire. Can you imagine that powerful light that we're going to dwell in? It is the righteous that are going to partake of this, not the wicked. It is not the wicked. It is the righteous. The righteous are going to dwell. You know, when it comes to the uh, destruction of the wicked, I used to think that part of the agony of the wicked when they're being destroyed is when they see their own lives before them where they have rejected Jesus. Where they see the many times that God reached out to them and they walked away from his grace. I used to think, wow, that they're going to realize right then and there, oh man, I have rejected God's goodness and grace. But it's very interesting. The book, Great Controversy, describes the scene a little bit more in detail. She quotes from Revelation chapter 20 and she says, the books are going to be open and they're going to see where they have rejected God. But she says something very beautiful immediately after. She says, all of a sudden, the king will be lifted up on his throne 
And the wicked will look up at that very moment. And they will see their last moments will be the life of Christ. They will see him being born. 2,000 years ago, in a lowly manger. They see him growing up, being tempted by the devil. They see him entering into his ministry. And calling the disciples, they see his love being manifested to the sick and to the dying. They see him preaching the gospel. She then describes at that very moment that as the wicked are watching this, all of a sudden they see when Jesus is taken captive by the mob and he's beaten. She sees when she says the wicked are then seeing Jesus being nailed to the cross. And then Jesus is lifted up before them. And with his last few breaths, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out, it is finished. Do you understand what the wicked are seeing at that very moment? Right before they're utterly blotted out, they're seeing love manifested before their eyes. And they will cry out, we have given this up? You know what God gives them in showing them his cross? One last hug goodbye. Folks, do you realize that this justice that is going to come upon the world one day, we're going to see the love of God manifested. Hell is not the opposite of heaven. It is not. Being eternally lost and never seeing God or having a conscious thought is the opposite. Hell is the process that leads to that. I myself have made several mistakes when I say, either going to heaven or hell. Hell is not a location. It's not a location. It's either being with God or choosing a life. Choosing that life with God or not having life at all. We present a false dichotomy when we say it's either heaven or hell that I'm going to. Wrong. Those are not two polar end opposites. It's life with God or death. And folks, Jesus has paid a price for every person to be there, to be in heaven. His mercies are for each and every person. Every person can have access to heaven. You don't have to be lost. No one has to be lost. No one has to be lost. All can enter into this beautiful place with Jesus to live with him in the everlasting fire, to see the king in his beauty. Spend a lifetime with him who gave up everything for you. Folks, God is offering you this.
Why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, as we look at ourselves, God, and we see the direction that our life is heading in, Father, we don't want to grow away from you, Lord. We want to grow towards you. Whatever it takes, Jesus, we pray that you would make us fit for heaven, that you would put heaven in our hearts, God, and that we would live one day to see you in your beauty, God. Father in heaven, I pray for every person here, somebody here who's making a decision perhaps to follow you or not to follow you, God. May they realize the motive for following you is that they get to live with you and see you. And the motive for them not to follow you, God, they would realize that they would miss this beautiful opportunity for them to live for all of eternity with you. God, heaven is worth everything to us. We pray you'd keep us faithful. Until that day, Jesus, we see your face. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.